The autumn wind is a pirate, blustering in from the sea. With a rollicking song, he sweeps along, swaggering boisterously. His face is weather-beaten, he wears a hooded sash, with a silver hat about his head and a bristling black mustache. He growls as he storms the country, a villain big and bold, and the trees all shake and quiver and quake as he robs them of their gold. The autumn wind is a raider, pillaging just for fun. He'll knock you round and upside down and laugh when he's conquered and won. Conventional wisdom might suggest that football and poetry don't go together. But The Autumn Wind, as read by my friend Olivia, is in fact a poem about the Oakland Raiders. Steve Sabal, the president of NFL Films, adapted a poem called Pirate Wind by Mary Jane Carter to honor the Raiders. And since 1974, it's more or less served as an unofficial anthem of sorts for the team. If it seems odd that a football team would use a poem as a rallying cry, well, that's a reasonable thing to think. But over the years, the Raiders and their fans have become known as Mavericks, who march to the beat of their own drum. And with the organization skipping town to Las Vegas next season, this seemed like a good topic for the podcast. Some of the stories you're about to hear are pretty out there, which of course is perfect. There's a miscue involving a cartoon broadcast, a guy playing football with a jack-o'-lantern on his head, a gorilla costume, a story about the Goonies, a horse, and some crafty gamesmanship. We'll even hear from an actual Raiders fan, too. You know, the vision for this podcast was a narrative-based show that explored stories. More obscure stories, to be exact. I knew a podcast was the perfect medium for this, since it's a great, and for the most part, a relatively simple way to connect with an audience. Of course, throughout human history, we've always found ways to connect with each other and share stories. And while technology will always continue to evolve, storytelling is here to stay. So if you want to share a story with an audience, create brand awareness, or whatever else you want to accomplish, Small League Productions can help. Visit smallleaguestude.com to see how I can help you create a handcrafted podcast that fits your style and personality. And most importantly, help you connect with an audience. Now on to this episode of Obscure Ball. It's called The Autumn Wind. December 29th, 2019. It's week 17 of the NFL season, and it's the fourth quarter at the Oakland Coliseum as the Raiders squared off with the Denver Broncos. At 7-8, the Raiders' season is hanging in the balance, as going into the game, they had an outside shot at making the playoffs. Moments earlier, Raiders quarterback Derek Carr capped a 55-yard drive with a two-yard touchdown pass to Hunter Renfro, cutting Denver's lead to 16-15. Now head coach John Gruden has an important decision to make. Tie the game with a point after attempt and go into overtime, or gamble and try to win it with a two-point conversion. At the risk of seeming undramatic, what happened next ultimately didn't really matter because the Tennessee Titans had just secured an AFC wildcard spot, so Oakland was pretty much screwed. But for the sake of the story arc, let's just revisit that two-point conversion attempt. It failed. Carr's pass was swatted away by Denver nose tackle Shelby Harris, who was cut three times by the Raiders, handing Oakland another losing season. The fans didn't exactly love it. 
booze, and trash rained down on the field as the Raiders left the Oakland Coliseum one final time. Not exactly the poetic end to an era so eloquently chronicled in Sabal's poem. But it fascinated me all the same. For whatever reason, the Oakland Raiders have always kind of been this weird and mystifying team to me. Maybe it's the passion of their fans juxtaposed with at least two decades of futility and heartbreak. Who knows what it is, but I wanted to learn more. However, not having actually set foot in the state of California, I can't really claim to know a lot about the Oakland Raiders. I know they haven't won a Super Bowl in nearly 40 years, and that their fans dress up in these really gnarly costumes at home games. But that's about it. The good news is, I know a Raiders fan. So I caught up with my friend Ryan Waycaster, a different Ryan from the last episode. This Ryan happens to be the biggest and frankly only Raiders fan I know. And the best part is, he lives just an hour away from me. So I took to the open road with my recording equipment, excited to be taking obscure ball on the road. Turns out, I'm really bad at planning things. So I uh, drove all the way here and forgot to get his address. And now, He's not picking up his phone. His battery probably died or something, but uh, we're not able to connect. And I've got to get all the way down to another town to announce a basketball game. So I think try one here, we can probably go ahead and declare a failure to launch. So I'm going to go find some place to eat tacos, and we'll just uh, reschedule. No big deal. Yeah. Definitely not one of my brighter moments. Here's the story. Ryan was supposed to text me his address so we could go do the interview, but on the day of the interview, I still didn't have it. So I sent him a text message asking for it, and confident that he'd respond, I stupidly hopped on the interstate figuring he'd send the address and I could just plug it into my GPS. Turns out, Ryan had spilled beer on his phone the night before, and it stopped working. But it's all good, because, you know, those sort of things happen. About two weeks later, we were able to meet up. He was actually coming to town, so I picked him up at the bus station. Armed with a case of beer and a DVD about the Oakland Raiders, we set about discussing the history of said Raiders from the perspective of one fan. Now keep in mind this is not an all-inclusive history of the Oakland Raiders. It's just a few cool little tidbits from Ryan's perspective. I got into the Oakland Raiders by accident when I was a kid in 1985 for Christmas. I was adopted as a kid, and my adopted parents had two twins, Shannon and Sean. I call them my aunt and my uncle, but they're actually my brother and sister because I was adopted by uh, my mother's uh, mom and stepdad. Well, anyway, we got a Nintendo um, for Christmas that year, and you know, of course we had the Mario and Legend of Zelda and shit like that, but the game that we played the most, uh, my uncle Sean and I, was Tecmo Bowl, Super Tecmo Bowl. He's talking about one of the coolest video game franchises ever. Tecmo Bowl and its successor Super Tecmo Bowl were innovative video games that came out for NES in 1989 and 91 respectively. Anybody that's ever, you know, played Nintendo or, you know, it was pretty much like the first Madden football game. And you pick the LA Raiders, they're unstoppable because of Bo Jackson, the running back. You know, we had Jeff Posseller that was the quarterback then. I mean, he was not the greatest pocket passer of all time, but one thing they had was Bo Jackson. Okay, so we're not really going to explore Bo Jackson for this episode. He's one of the most talented athletes probably ever, 
but there's so much cool info out there already about Bo, I feel like I have nothing to add. The documentaries done on him are better than anything I could ever do. He was awesome, and that's all I know to say. Also, you'll notice Ryan referred to them as the LA Raiders. The team actually played in Los Angeles from 1982 until 1994 because Al Davis, who owned the team, was unhappy with the Oakland Coliseum. They went back in 1995 and, of course, are now leaving for Las Vegas. Anyway, I should probably mention Al Davis because, in some ways, it feels like the team embodied his image. Or maybe he took on theirs. He was different. He was very flashy. Like I said, he had he would drive his Cadillac onto the field. Uh, he looked. They said at one point, I think uh, it was a quote from one of the uh, coaches for the Kansas City Chiefs said like he would like pull his car onto the field, and they're like he looked like a Las Vegas bookie or something like a mafia member. But one thing about Al Davis, that's where he came from, and he was the youngest head coach and general manager in NFL history at 33 years old. And his idea was, quote-unquote, commitment to excellence was a quote by him, and then just win, baby, was another quote. And also he said this, quote-unquote, I don't care what color, creed, race you are, as long as you show up on Sunday and play like hell for me. And that's what he did. And he had the first Hispanic head coach, Tom Flores, and then also had the first African-American head coach of all time, Art Schell, who both played for the Raiders. Tom Flores was a quarterback for the Oakland Raiders in the 60s, and Art Schell was an offensive uh, guard during the uh, 1970s during our Super Bowl. One quick thing about that. Art Schell is technically the second African-American head coach, but the first in the modern era. A gentleman by the name of Fritz Pollard briefly coached the Hammond pros in 1926 after a successful but short career in the NFL as a running back. Unfortunately, because of racial tensions, Pollard and a lot of the other black coaches actually had to leave the NFL. But today, Fritz is in the Pro and College Football Hall of Fame. But I think Ryan's point in general stands. It seems like the Raiders were kind of at the forefront of social progress, which of course is a good thing. So back to Ryan for a bit. Now to paint you a picture, he's like this salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. He works in construction, plays in punk rock bands, and he's wearing a Raiders Rich Gannon jersey when we met up. He's also not new to podcasting. He actually used to be part of a podcast. I came up with the name. I thought the name was genius, by the way. It was called Dicks at the Round Table instead of Knights at the Round Table. So there's that. It was a podcast about pop culture and other things. It seems pretty cool. Anyway. I probably shouldn't generalize people too much, but he's what I imagine a lot of Raiders fans being like. He belongs to a fan base that sticks with the team through thick and thin. The heartbreak of something like the Immaculate Catch, having the team move to LA and back, and now close to two decades of futility. But among the heartbreak, there's been some great moments too. Aside from winning three Super Bowls, there was November 17, 1968. The Raiders hosted the New York Jets in what is sometimes considered to be one of the most exciting games ever played. You see, the Jets and Raiders was, and still is, considered a pretty big rivalry. As the Jets' former PR guy put it, when the Jets and Raiders played, it wasn't a rivalry, it was a war. The previous year, for instance, Jets quarterback Joe Namath had his jaw broken by the Raiders' Ben Davidson, who hit him so hard he sent his helmet flying and everything. Namath stayed in the game, even though Oakland won 38-27. 
Now the Jets want revenge. The Raiders ultimately won this game 43-32, complete with a come-from-behind victory where the Raiders scored two touchdowns in the final minute. It was probably awesome for the 53,318 fans at the game, but those watching TV never saw the ending. Instead, they were interrupted by a TV film called Heidi. If you don't know about it, Heidi was this made-for-TV film based off of a children's novel from like the 1880s, and it's about this little orphan Swiss girl. I've actually never read it, nor have I ever seen the film, but it's one of the best-selling books of all time, and the 1968 film was crazy popular too. By the 70s, Heidi was basically an institution unto itself, with a cartoon spinoff and everything. But for the football fans who tuned in to NBC that fateful Sunday, they likely weren't as taken with Heidi as other people. The game was such a high-scoring affair that it went past the 7 p.m. time slot, which is when Heidi was scheduled to play. And since football games usually don't go that long, NBC figured it made sense to schedule Heidi for 7 p.m. But as 7 p.m. approached, NBC had to decide whether to keep showing the game, which of course was shaping up to be one for the books, or show Heidi. Imagine like all these guys in Oakland, like working class, like sitting back drinking a beer, like, yes, I'm going to watch this game. And these guys didn't even take showers, they're still in work uniforms. And all of a sudden, some little redhead little girl just pops on TV, starts singing her freaking heart out, and you're like, what the hell is this, you know? I mean, I can imagine back then how many beer cans were probably, empty beer cans were thrown at a TV at that moment, you know? I think a lot of people didn't know this because, you know, this is before social media, this is way before, like, you know, internet or anything, so pretty much people had to find out the next day the final score. I mean, I'd, be, I'd lose sleep. As a Raiders fan, I would lose sleep. I'd be in insomnia. I'd be sitting there going, oh my God, oh my God. This little redhead girl just like saying all this shit. Like, okay, what's the score? Like, who won, you know? But it happened. And there's been a lot of things like that with the Raiders, like weird coincidence. And it's always that team that those weird things happen. I'm sure lots of fans can stake a similar claim, that their team is the team who always has these weird things happen to them. But I feel comfortable saying that the Oakland Raiders are an exceptional example of this. And it's probably not coincidental that some pretty eccentric characters have played for the Raiders over the years, and maybe there's a correlation between that and the weird things that happen. During our long and at times meandering conversation, Ryan and I talked a lot about some of those players. Remember, he's wearing a Rich Gannon jersey. And I learned a lot about some previous Raiders players. Now, in recent history, there's Antonio Brown, who of course borders on insanity. I'm ashamed of him. I'm sad that he came to my team and used us like that. But at the same time, I wish him the best and I hope he gets mental help. He is not stable. And I want to say that he probably has some type of Injury from his head getting hit. And I'm, maybe uh, Vontez Burfecht might have caused that with those hits that he gave him those years. But the man needs help. If you watched the Oakland Raiders Hard Knocks episode, his first appearance at minicamp, he rode in on a hot air balloon. For the record, I think Brown has been rightfully criticized for his recent behavior. He deserves all of it. And he probably has some legal problems on the horizon. But like I alluded to just moments ago, 
he's not the first eccentric player to take the field for the Raiders. In fact, just broadly speaking, it seemed like there was a time when everyone in the league was just crazy. When John Madden was the coach for the Raiders, for instance, he kind of just let his players do whatever they wanted. He didn't, you know, care what they did. Well, on the road, they had a problem. You know, a lot of teams have problems, you know, especially back then, um, partying. Because I don't think their uh, drug policies and stuff like that were mandated like they are now. I know Kenny Stabler, one of my favorite quarterbacks of all time, he said that he used to learn the playbook as a quarterback, learn the playbook by the neon lights in the bar, <laughs> you know. And they said they used to sneak out of their hotel rooms and go party all night and then just like stay up all night you know, doing drugs and you know, drinking. And then they'd go out and they'd win. Wow. That sort of reminds me of the 1979 film North Dallas 40, which I was surprised to later find out featured a former Raider named John Matusak. If you've never seen the film, it features fictional players who are supposed to be the Dallas Cowboys. It's full of debauchery and partying, and it's really funny. And the interesting thing here is that North Dallas 40 is based off of a book by Peter Jinn, who was a wide receiver for the actual Dallas Cowboys back in the 60s. The book was meant to reflect his time in the league, so maybe Matusak brought some of his own experiences to the role. As a defensive end, Matusak was the first overall draft pick in 1973, and eventually ended up with the Raiders where he helped them win two Super Bowls. Towards the end of his playing career, he took up acting and landed roles in the aforementioned North Dallas 40 and, believe it or not, the Goonies, where he played the character Sloth, which at least for me was new and crazy information. Sadly, he probably did party too much. In 1989, he died from a prescription drug overdose with traces of cocaine in his system. He was just 38. Also, Matusak was not the first football player turned actor that played for the Raiders. There was also Carl Weathers. You know, the dude from Predator, who later played Apollo Creed and Rocky, and then a really weird version of himself on Arrested Development. Weathers was signed as an undrafted free agent and played seven games for the Raiders in 1970 and 71, before being released and banished to the Canadian League. And even the guys who weren't actors, some of them were still entertainers on the side. Which brings up Ted Hendricks, who Ken Stabler once called a party unto himself. This 6'7", 220-pound mountain of a man is pretty well known among football fans. He's got an awesome nickname, the Mad Stork, and he's a four-time Super Bowl champion and a college and football Hall of Fame inductee after all. But maybe some of his antics are less well known, and hey, even if they aren't, they still need to be discussed. So remember how we talked about Antonio Brown showing up to practice in a hot air balloon or Al Davis driving his car right onto the field? There must be some kind of secret code that says Raiders have to make grand entrances. Hendricks, for his part, was traded to the Raiders in 1975 and decided to show up for his first day of practice riding a horse with a German-inspired war helmet on his head, complete with spikes and holding a traffic cone in lieu of a lance. I think there's a saying about first impressions. The best part is, that wasn't even his only costume. And uh, it was a Halloween Monday Night Football game, and actually played a whole play with a jack-o'-lantern on his head instead of a helmet. And the officials didn't stop it. It's like, this guy played a whole play with a jack-o'-lantern on his head. 
So the Raiders have like a crazy uh, backstory. They, you know, they had fun. You know, I mean, you look at their fans, and you wonder why they're like dressing up like the way they do. It's like, well, the players have that same mentality. <laughs> you know, they're like children out there. Speaking of the fans and those gnarly costumes I mentioned earlier, Ryan had a little bit to say about that too. It's a working class community. They work and they go see the Oakland Raiders on Sundays, you know, and a lot of the uh, fans, the fan base is huge at the black hole. Like the uh, the gorilla, for example, the guy that always wears the gorilla suit. I've seen interviews with him and he has a you know Monday through Friday job, just like uh, the... Uh, guy that dresses like a voodoo doctor like the shaman or whatever he beats on the drum right at the uh at the uprights on the opposing side of the team and he beats those drums to kind of like do voodoo against the other team so they might not score that guy's actually a an attorney that lives in oakland though i guess fun is relative like they had fun until they didn't which brings me back to that final game in oakland the one point loss to denver from the perspective of Raiders fans, that probably wasn't especially fun. John Gruden thought it'd be a great idea to go for the first time that season for a two-point conversion. Last play of all time in Oakland. Two-point conversion. Missed it. Lost it. And I watched it, and um, I'm not going to lie to you, I cried. Uh, no, Stu, I'm not, I'm not lying to you. I cried a little bit, and I just cut, I cut it off. I was so upset. I cut it off and I sat there and I pondered why would you do that? That's the question. Why? You gotta wonder why fans stick with teams sometimes. Most sports fans know that your favorite team will let you down time and time again. Yeah, sometimes you get a glorious payoff like when the Chicago Cubs finally won their first World Series in more than a century. Or when LeBron makes his prodigal return to Cleveland and help the Cavs win an NBA title. But more often, it's what Ryan described. You're just left shaking your head and wondering, why? As to why fans stick with their teams, I don't really know the answer, but I also sort of do. In an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm, Larry David referred to himself as the guy that goes down with the ship, but he's not even the captain. He's the guy that keeps the captain company while the ship goes down. I think a lot of fans are the same way. They like to keep the team company while the ship sinks, or gets moved off to Las Vegas, or gets caught in the worst cheating scandal in a long time. Looking at you, Houston Astros. But through all of that, there's some good moments too. During our recording session, Ryan and I put a dent in that case of beer that he brought. And at one point, well... As happens when you drink beer, I needed a bathroom break. While I was gone, Ryan just kept talking. And it wasn't until later that I went back and listened to all of our recordings that I heard what he had to say. Sometimes when I uh, watch the Oakland Raiders on Sundays, I feel that, you know, sometimes that uh, I feel like I didn't fulfill everything in my journey in my life that I wanted to fulfill. And then I watched the Oakland Raiders perform and play, and I feel like that's me out there. That's a persona, like my persona. That's me out there, the underdog. And I feel tied to it. And when they lose, 
it affects me, you know. But when they succeed, it's so uplifting. I work a 40-hour week job, just like most Oakland fans, you know, out there. And uh, I feel that uh, when the Oakland Raiders, when they win, it's, it's fulfillment for us. It's like they're winning for us. They're winning for a, a working-class town. They're, they're winning for their fans. And it's really sad to see this legacy move to another city and leave behind this legacy but maybe this legacy will move on to this new city and we might take this journey further as Raiders fans and maybe the silver and black will prosper and that's my hope and maybe just maybe we will be that dynasty like the New England Patriots because you know if any team deserves it it's the freaking Oakland Raiders I think that's a pretty good place to end this episode of Obscure Ball thanks to Ryan for coming on and opening up and sharing his stories he's a really cool guy and a good friend also thanks to Olivia for reading the poem at the beginning and if you're feeling up for it be sure to subscribe to Obscure Ball wherever you get your podcasts so you can get notifications each time I put out a new episode, which is occasionally. The shelf beside my bed is cluttered with junk Scraps of paper and change Wrappers from